0: Ovarian cancer is the seventh most commonly diagnosed cancer in women worldwide. In 2019, approximately 1,600 Australian women are expected to be diagnosed with ovarian cancer and each day in Australia four women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer and three will die from this disease. Education and increasing people's awareness of ovarian cancer will continue to be the best way of reducing our risk from this devastating disease. So, please take the time to listen to Kristen's ovarian cancer story to increase your awareness of this disease, which affects so many women around the world, as education empowers and it also saves lives. I was diagnosed
1: with ovarian cancer
0: in September 2009 when I was
1: 47. So, I was a very busy professional person with a very full and interesting life. I was working as a psychologist in the public sector. And really, really involved in my job, my profession and mentoring others, uh, providing supervision to others and helping others grow their careers and that sort of thing. I was really physically active. I had a really big interest in outdoor sports, um, like cross-country skiing, kayaking, orienteering, bushwalking, that sort of thing. And... um, you know, I was a bit stressed like a lot of people are and you know, they live in, in the city and have a, have a busy professional life. But on the whole, I was just ticking along, jamming lots of stuff into the day. And uh, I don't have children, which is, um, makes my life a little bit simpler.
0: But, yeah, I've got a
1: big social circle.
0: What sort of led you to going and getting diagnosed? What should we know about ovarian cancer?
1: The main thing to know is every person's path to diagnosis is a little bit different. And while we definitely know there are some things that most people have and that later when they're diagnosed, we're able to show that they pretty much all had those things, there are still a lot of quirky individual things that happen. And my my story is a good example of that.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us your story?
1: Yeah. I had... um. Large swollen lymph nodes in my groin on both sides, and that was seemed to be out of the blue. Normally, if you get a swollen lymph node, it means you've got an infection somewhere, but there was I had no injuries to my feet or legs, and I couldn't make sense of it. Also, at the same time, I was having some out of cycle bleeding and feeling just increasingly run down over a period of months. I thought though at 47 with a busy life that, you know, maybe it was just menopause or some other uh, gynecological quirk that might happen at that age. But nevertheless, it just still didn't seem right. So I went to the GP and I said, I've got these two things going on, lymph nodes and I've got these unusual mid-cycle bleeding. Could they be related? The GP said, no, they can't be related. So, but that gynecological symptom is unusual. So, let's get you properly um, examined. So, I was referred for a transvaginal ultrasound, which is what is recommended to look for gynecological cancers, including ovarian cancer. That's what people should do. So, that was great. Um, went and had that. Fortunately, I thought at the time, it came back just showing uterine fibroids and um, everything else was clear. So we thought, well, okay, that's good. But then the swollen lymph nodes were still there. So another doctor said, look, they're not supposed to be there. That's six months now. You need to have a surgical biopsy. So I went to see the, a general surgeon and he looked at my feet and my legs, no signs of infection. He says, don't know what that is probably nothing when do you want the operation I said oh going on holidays in a couple of months and I want to be able to swim I'll have it after that two months later after I come back from my holidays so I went and had the excisional biopsy and a couple of days after that the general surgeon rang me at work and said I don't usually ring people but We've got your results, and um, for the lymph nodes, and it appears to be a tumor related to a tumor, probably a gynecological one. I went, "Oh, that's interesting <laughs> Gosh. so then it joined that joined the dots, so obviously it was only a month later that I asked myself the question: why didn't it show on the transvaginal ultrasound and do they know or not I mean my GP wrote to the um, ultrasonographer or to the doctors that interpreted the ultrasound and we have gone back and had a look at it all again and it's just hiding. Really?
0: (laughs) Gosh, is that really what they said? (laughs) I'm not sure if hiding was the technical term he used. Goodness gracious. What are some of the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer that you might be aware of? There are odd ones like the one I had and that they have done a study on
1: pathways to diagnosis as part of the a big study in you know, the Australian ovarian cancer study you know, a couple of years ago. And through the lymph nodes, was very rare. I've heard of others where some, someone had a bizarre skin reaction on their hands and apparently that was the pathway to diagnosis. But most people have at least some of... Or all of the main symptoms, that's increased abdominal size and persistent abdominal bloating, abdominal or pelvic pain, feeling full after eating a small amount or needing to urinate often or urgently. Now, as anyone can tell by hearing that list, everybody gets that all the time, regularly. Okay, in My gynecological oncologist, who is my surgeon, he tells me he gets that
0: twice a year himself. (laughs) Exactly. So we shouldn't all run out to the doctor every time that we get those uh, signs and symptoms? No, because they could just be um, explained by a benign condition. The message
1: to get out there is, are they new or different for that person, for that woman? Are they persistent? That's a good way of knowing. Yeah. And Ovarian Cancer Australia suggests you write a symptom diary and that symptom diary it might turn out that that it's nothing to do with ovarian cancer but people who do get diagnosed when they look back almost all of them have these symptoms even though most people who have these symptoms don't have ovarian
0: cancer And at least if they keep that diary, the symptom diary, at least when they go to speak to their doctor, they've got something with them to show them, you know, and perhaps there is a relation there and have that discussion.
1: Yeah. So it's new or different for that person and persistent. And the um, noting, of course, here there are different types of ovarian cancer. I have the most common type which is um, the epithelial ovarian cancer and there's subtypes of that. But there there is a type which is co- not quite so common, but common enough where the tumour grows very large in one site. So people have a very prominent uh, lump or bumps that they can feel. And that some of those tumours, in fact, can get very, very large, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're um, very life-threatening but if you have one of those sort of things, they're, quite, they're much easier to feel. But if you have the type of more common type of ovarian cancer, it tends to be spread quite widely, but not necessarily large in one particular spot. But the symptoms as a result become, you know, come across as quite
0: vague. Yes. So how is ovarian cancer generally diagnosed? It's usually, you know, for a start by excluding other things.
1: Uh, Many people talk about there being a long time where they thought that they had something else altogether, usually something gastric or irritable bowel syndrome, something like that. Some people have um, actually gone to see colorectal surgeons and actually had some surgery on their bowel and it was discovered there. Sometimes it's just I've heard of people having it randomly picked up when they're having some other kind of gynecological examination or treatment usually it starts with a niggling suspicion that something's wrong and then there's various investigations. And uh, the two things that they recommend that you do is have a transvaginal ultrasound So long as, as I learned myself, you don't 100% rely on it because they can miss the tumours and to have the CA125 blood test. But you have to be cautious with that because... The test that also measures other types of inflammation in your body and it doesn't just predict ovarian cancer. And it's also the value of one test doesn't tell you much because everybody's different as to how high their tests go when they have ovarian cancer. But if your test if you do that test a few times and it changes, then that can be indicative that something is going on example, in my case, I never had the test before while I was going through these investigations because nobody thought, nobody was even thinking about ovarian cancer in my case. But even afterwards, when I had my relapse, my blood tests were still normal. So everybody's body is really, really different. So summing up, I'd just say the pathway to diagnosis is rarely fast, and it's always a matter of exploration and ruling things in and out.
0: And what about the BRCA gene? What's that association to ovarian cancer? It's most famous, as you can imagine, because it's related to breast cancer, which
1: is where it's got its name. But I don't understand the, you know, the science of it. But if you have a fault on either BRCA1 or BRCA2, you have an increased likelihood over your lifetime of getting breast and or ovarian cancer. And a number of other cancers, but much less chance. And in men,
0: of getting prostate cancer and male breast cancer. And what about your own situation with Brca? Um, my father had prostate cancer
1: and passed away in two thousand and three. Of that, his twin sister had bilateral um, breast cancer as a fairly young young, being under sixty. Their mother had some sort of breast cancer as well. Interestingly, perhaps it's because it was in the 1980s, 1990s, nobody asked the question is, is there a family history in this family? So that when I was diagnosed, I was the final piece in the puzzle. And there was enough family members to trigger in the oncologist minds that this was a family history and that I needed to be tested for BRCA. Had someone thought about that some years before, I would have been tested and I could have had preventative surgery, but I didn't
0: have that opportunity. Yeah, and that's changing, isn't it, in terms of people's awareness around BRCA, which is great, which is wonderful. Yes, it's one of the single biggest things we can do. It's not going to help everyone if we raise awareness about
1: BRCA, but the people who are carriers, if they do get to find that out, they are real chances for them to consider a range of options for um, risk reduction and that each person would talk to their doctors because some of those options can be quite life-changing, such as surgery, but it can make a real difference and it would have made a difference for me.
0: And what were your treatment options? When you first diagnosed with any of the more common
1: ovarian cancers, the ones that are fairly well spread at the time of diagnosis, you really only have one option, and that's a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Um, and the surgery is strongly recommended. that The surgery is done by a specialist gynaecological oncologist who is an um, a obstetrician gynaecologist who's done further specialised training in women's cancer. And the research shows that people get um, better outcomes, including survival, if they have their operation done by such a person. And then at the moment for the first round, the first bout of chemotherapy that people have, there's basically just a standard one. There's not too many variations available. There are some new combinations and trials of new combinations for first time, but where the treatment really starts to get more individualized is when the woman relapses. When, if or when the woman relapses.
0: And that's the importance of having a great team around you, isn't it? You've mentioned that. That's paramount. Yes, yeah. There
1: are the specialised teams exist. It's obviously challenging for people in rural and regional areas to get access to the specialist teams, but they, they are in the, not so much the more remote country areas, but in the regional cities and regional large regional centres there are teams that can specialise in this. And the, the people can always reach out to the big city hospitals as well if they're they in the country.
0: That's a very good point. So it's the gynecological oncologists, they are key to being a part of a team. Yes. In some major hospitals, there are specialist
1: gynecological
0: oncology units
1: that only deal in women's cancer, in women's reproductive cancers.
0: And that would be also important because they would stay on top of all what's going on in terms of research and, tri- and current trials. Yes. So even if a person
1: um, is in not immediately close to a large teaching hospital in a city, they could talk to their doctors about, you know, linking into such hospital or getting an opinion from. But if you're in a city, you have no problems getting to those specialists, that specialist care. You should take quite a lot of trouble to make sure that you do.
0: No, that's really good um, advice. And what about ovarian cancer myths that we should demystify today? Well, I think it's great that we're talking
1: about awareness of signs and symptoms. I don't think it's really helpful for people to think that they're going to, for most types of ovarian cancer that spread very early in um, in their growth, picking it up, you're probably not really going to get it so early that it's going to make a huge difference. It'll definitely make a difference. If you can get it a bit earlier, then you have less extensive surgery and there's less tumour for the chemotherapy to work on. But what I would really hate is for women to, if they felt, you know, to let themselves feel guilty or bad. They didn't pick it up earlier because they didn't pay attention to the signs and symptoms. But the signs and symptoms are subtle. And by the time they show in most types of ovarian cancer, the cancer's pretty well spread around the abdominal cavity. So people shouldn't feel bad that, you know, if they didn't go to the doctor, then they caused their own ovarian cancer by not um, picking
0: it up quickly enough. And I think a myth that you educated myself on this morning is that a pap smear won't pick it up. And I think that's important for people to know that.
1: Critical. Um, that will only pick up things that are around the cervix and the vagina,
0: and um, ovarian cancer doesn't give out any signs in that area. I think that's a really good education in itself. It is obviously one of the the holy grail of um, ovarian cancer is trying to develop a screening test.
1: There's a lot of work gone into that, and and it's not from lack of effort. There has not been much of a result there. It's just to do with the the biology of their varying cancer tumours, they're just tricky to detect. And, you know, they, at least by getting people to talk about family history, that is something that can, in the case where family history is a factor,
0: that's something that can make a difference.
1: But on the whole, it's a difficult disease to
0: pick up. And what about any message... Uh, that you feel is important for newly diagnosed ovarian cancer sufferers out there? It's a good time. If you're newly
1: diagnosed now, while it's it's a disease that hasn't got the most fabulous prognosis, it is a fabulous time in scientific history to be in the ovarian cancer world because of the development of new drugs. And there are some drugs which are having really significant effects. And what are, what are they? Um, the PARP inhibitors. Um, at the moment, uh, some are still in trial, some are on the PBS for limited subgroups of people, mostly people with the BRCA gene fault. But it's a time in history where a lot of the medical research is about developing these new drugs. So in a few more years' time, there'll be more, even more options available for people. There's no, I can't see there's a cure on the horizon, but I think we've moved to a time where we can anticipate having an improved quality of life for a longer time, drugs that you can live with and live on and, you know, a sense of hope that, um, you know, medicine's looking out for us. And let's not forget that some significant subgroup of women that are newly diagnosed even with advanced ovarian cancer may only ever just have that single episode. We don't know who those people are going to be But there's always that hope that you just have to deal with it once and then you go on to live a long and healthy life. It is the case that the majority will experience a relapse, but the way things are now, we can have a bit more optimism about living a good life while living with the illness.
0: And I think that's a great way to end in terms of it sounds like Avarian cancer, they're spending money in this country and probably worldwide, I hope. It's a, a more optimistic time in terms of treatment moving forward with ovarian cancer so we can live a, if we are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, a more quality of life. Yes,
1: and I can stand as a, an example of I'm a, one of a small group of people who've had a spectacularly good response to one of these new treatments so that I'm now um, well into my fifth year of my second remission with no sign of a relapse on the horizon. My life has changed and I can't do all the things I used to do, so I've had to retire from work and change all my hobbies and interests. But, yeah treated the statistics and some of us are going to keep doing that
0: and you're living here today talking on this podcast and, and spreading the word which is wonderful so yeah i appreciate so much for your time today yes thank you thank you very much if you are concerned about ovarian cancer reach out and speak with your doctor and please share this podcast interview with the women in your life your mum your daughter your sister your aunt your girlfriends your neighbor or your work colleagues Visit ovariancancer.net.au for some excellent resources and quality information about ovarian cancer. And remember, February is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month in Australia, so consider donating or hosting an Ovarian Cancer Teal event to support the women and their families living with ovarian cancer. You've been listening to MediTalk, a podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You can follow MediTalk Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to subscribe, rate and review this podcast via iTunes or your podcasting app. If you have any health topics you would like to hear discussed, please email them to danae at meditalk.com.au. Thanks for listening.